This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the U.S. killed the world's most wanted terrorists in a drone strike. How years of intelligence gathering led up to that moment and what it means for U.S. counterterrorism efforts. And we're in a global food crisis that could have far-reaching consequences. We talked to an agricultural economist who says we should have seen this coming. Plus, the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law is managed by the Department of Transportation. We break down some of the challenges in implementing that legislation and tracking the funds. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. On July 30th, the U.S. killed Ayman al-Zawahri. He was Osama bin Laden's right-hand man and helped plot multiple terror attacks, including September 11th. Bill Raggio has been studying al-Qaeda and al-Zawahiri for years. He's a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Bill, welcome. Good morning, Mimi. Thanks for having me. First, explain who Zawahri was and his role within al-Qaeda in recent years. Yes, he's uh, been involved in the, uh, with j the jihad, the global jihad, for four decades now. Started in Afghanistan with Osama bin Laden, where they built the nucleus for al-Qaeda, then involved with the formation of al-Qaeda. He's been the deputy emir of al-Qaeda since its formation um, and uh, in the early to mid-1990s. As you noted, involved in the uh, embassy attacks in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998, which resulted in death of hundreds of, of civilians. Um, he was indicted for that. He's He was the deputy emir or deputy leader of al-Qaeda up until 2011 when the U.S. killed Osama bin Laden. And he's held the reins of, for al-Qaeda for the last 11 years. And it, look, and the killing him is a good thing. Um, but we have to remember, he's been in he's been at the top of the leadership for of al-qaeda for 40 years and actively hunted by the united states for 24 years now that's a that's a quite a long time to get him so as you say you know zoahri was on the u.s radar for for decades what do we know about the intelligence gathering that led to that successful strike yeah the the administration says that there was family members who were they were tracking who were heading to kabul and that was one method. I'm, I'm certain there was intelligence gathering via uh, satellite and what they call, um, you know, probably drones, things of that nature. We get a lot of conflicting information, and you know, we're at that we're at the, the first stages of this. I don't expect that we have the full picture, but ultimately, he was standing on a balcony when he was killed. Drones were um, in the air uh, over Kabul. They spotted him and launched that attack. I've also seen, by the way, seen reporting that, and this is highly irresponsible, whoever leaked this, that there were CIA operatives, whether they were American or Afghan or another nationality, on the ground. Um, that should not have been disclosed. Whoever did that, um, that could, that exposes your 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 human intelligence assets to uh, to a hunt by the Taliban. And, and Bill, what do we know about the drone itself that carried out the the mission? Ooh, it's very likely it was one of the Reaper drones. We've, these have been used um, in 
for 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 decades now. They were used in the hunt in in Yemen, in Somalia, in North Africa, but particularly in Afghanistan and Pakistan. The drone campaign that uh, that was very active from 2005 up until 2018 in Pakistan specifically. And these can loiter. These have about a 30-hour flight time. Uh, but the distance that it has to travel to conduct this particular strike, if they're not and they're not based in the region, unless Pakistan has been giving them the ability to do so, though both they can carry several, usually their Hellfire missiles, missiles, which have uh, varying degrees of warheads that can be used. Um, you know, explosive, thermobaric. They can shoot out uh, bladed weapons uh, in in order to in, to minimize impact and kill an individual target or kill a larger number of people. And, and Bill, by, by carrying this out with a drone and, and killing Zawahri, the U.S. is missing the opportunity to gain more intelligence. Can you talk about the trade-offs? Absolutely. So it's understandable that this was used. That, you know, the most important thing was to take him out. But while it's being, you know, hailed, you, you hit the nail on the head there. We're not gathering intelligence and exploiting that intelligence to understand Al Qaeda's network, what it's been doing for the last ten years, um, who the, the relationships with the Taliban and other terror groups. Because putting boots on the ground in Kabul would have been impossible to do. Afghanistan is Taliban controlled, and the, and Zawari was certainly sheltering in Afghanistan in Kabul with the approval of the Taliban. There was a large security detail surrounding him both al-Qaeda and the Taliban, without a doubt, it would that would have been a suicide mission. So this had to be done. But when we killed bin Laden, we got a vast treasure trove and, and gained a greater understanding of al-Qaeda. And also that information helped us identify and target other key al-Qaeda leaders over time. So the fact that this was a successful mission, does it mean that over-the-horizon operations are good enough in Afghanistan and that we really don't need people on the ground? Since the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, this is the first strike. So it's the first strike in 11-plus months. It killed Zawahiri. That's great. There are far more al-Qaeda operatives there. This was a very difficult operation to conduct. So they proved that they can do it. Now they need to prove can they do it um, in a sustained manner that can impact al-Qaeda's organization. Killing one leader every once a year is not going to impact the organization. Killing 10 or 20 of them can have a, a very serious effect. Al-Qaeda is going to, and the Taliban are going to change how they operate. They're going to change their operational security, how they hide their top leadership there. And without a doubt, Zawahiri wasn't in Kabul alone. He has a staff. We know this from the bin Laden documents, how Al-Qaeda is organized. Um, and these are, the, and his staff are tend to be the key people in the organization. They're the up-and-comers who are trusted with the top leadership positions over time. So if it's a one-and-done, this isn't effective. It's not sustainable. If it can be sustained over time, which I have my doubts given the time and distance needed to um, to launch these types of strikes, um, then, then it'll be proof. But one strike is not proof. And very briefly, Bill, is, will this impact uh, the U.S.'s ability to evacuate some of the people that are still left behind in Afghanistan, given the relationship with the Taliban? Yes. I think this makes everything far more difficult. This was the reason why the withdrawal and how it was executed, particularly how it was executed, was dangerous. The United States needed to get American citizens out of Afghanistan immediately and they waited until the beginning of august to issue 
the the leave we we we're telling you to leave order um with, with the americans and, and green card holders they're now hostages to the taliban they have been the taliban has made it difficult for them and i expect the taliban to make it even more difficult for them to leave these are bargaining chips that the taliban can and is using all right bill thanks so much for being on the program thank you very much have a great day next on government matters food costs a lot more than it did just a year ago what the federal government can do to alleviate the pain both at home and abroad we'll be right back The U.N. estimates that global food prices are almost 25 percent higher than they were a year ago. And a record number of people are on the brink of starvation. Chris Barrett is an agricultural and development economist and professor at Cornell University. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Mimi. So the embargo on Ukraine's grain shipments has been lifted. Will this bring any relief? It will bring a little bit of relief in that Ukraine is a major exporter of several key commodities, especially wheat and maize and sunflower oil. But it, this is largely just a, a recent interruption in a broader pattern of structural problems we face in the global agri-food system where demand is just growing faster than supply. And so this will help to temper the recent price increases, but it's not going to solve the underlying structural problems. And, and you say that the world's agricultural and food systems face, quote, a perfect storm. Explain that. Well, we've got a combination of several things that have hit at once, any one of which is a mild problem, but together pose a major problem. The first of these is the obvious continued disruptions associated with COVID. This is a massive macroeconomic shock, especially in the low-income world, which has had a much harder time being able to vaccinate its people and provide curative treatment. So the, the economic losses in many countries, the people put out of work, have been really considerable, and that's caused a big increase in poverty and poverty is the big predictor of food insecurity of people going hungry moreover the pandemic has meant that developing country governments like our own government have spent massive amounts on public health treatments on trying to provide temporary safety nets and they just have no resources left to buffer people against the food price shock so that's big problem one that's a major storm on its own the second one is climate change Climate change is increasingly causing major disruptions in key growing areas around the world. We're seeing unusual heat in the United States. We're seeing a, an unprecedented drought in the U.S. West. These are being replicated in other places, too, and those cause supply shortfalls. We simply don't grow as much grain. Uh, livestock aren't as productive, et cetera. So that, that slows supply growth. That's a real headwind uh, that we're, we're facing as we move forward with, uh, with demand due to income and population growth. And then the third is the disruptions caused by the war. Two major agricultural exporters, a big share of their, their crop exports, as well as exports of things like fertilizer and fuel. Russia is a major seller of fertilizer and fuel on the global market. Those have all created added drags that slow supply and thereby result in higher, uh, higher food prices that are causing real problems. So, Chris, are, is this current food security crisis worse than previous ones that we've had? And, and if so, how much worse? Um, well, it's hard to put an exact number on it, but the the 
the food prices we face today are higher, even in inflation-adjusted terms, than the, the highs that we hit back in 2008 to 2012. We had two recent global food price spikes that caused real problems around the world, driving tens, if not hundreds of millions of people into poverty and food insecurity, and resulting in lots of civil unrest. We saw governments fall in places like Haiti and Madagascar, in part because of people's displeasure with the challenge of feeding their families well. We're already seeing similar political stresses today. The government of Sri Lanka recently fell, and part of that was unrest around food and fuel prices. Um, so will we see serious humanitarian consequences from this? Yes, we already are. We are seeing uh, record numbers of people who are displaced from their homes due to war and due to, to climate shocks. Those people have to be fed because they aren't immediately absorbed into, into regular economic activity. And on top of that, we're seeing very high food prices that are making a healthy diet unaffordable even to people who are keeping jobs in much of the world. So the, the humanitarian response needed right now is, is something on the order of almost $50 billion. And that's just a lot more than is usually anteed up to help to meet immediate food needs. And well, that can't come at the cost of addressing the long run challenges. Well, Chris, let's talk about solutions. One of the solutions that you're, you're calling for is to build better social safety nets. What does that actually look like for the U.S. government? Well, the U.S. government is a good example of what we did here in the pandemic. You know, it was quite remarkable that the official estimate of food insecurity in the United States based off of the December 2019 survey data was 10.5% of Americans. And in December of 2020, after the largest drop in employment in American history, the food insecurity rate was exactly the same. It was 10.5%. Why was it that amid this massive dislocation that happened in the economy, lots of people put out of work, we weren't seeing increases in hunger and food insecurity in the United States. It was because we had rapid response with safety nets. Governments stepped up and provided checks. There were rent moratoria. There were increased uh, SNAP benefits for those who qualified for that program. There were summer electronic benefit transfer programs for the school lunch and school breakfast programs so that kids who would otherwise have been fed at schools were still getting food at home. All of these things expanded very quickly. That simply has not happened in most of the world. So we've shown that in the face of a massive disruption, we can shield vulnerable people against suddenly being hungry. We just haven't extended that safety net to cover the rest of the world. And part of that requires setting up financial trigger mechanisms so that those things are fairly automatic, that they don't rely upon the political will that was marshaled quickly in the United States. We can do this soberly, safely, deliberately to set up trigger mechanisms, just like an insurance policy that you or I have that will trigger payments that will enable the humanitarian response community to provide people, provide for people in times of need. We're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, thanks so much for having me. Projects are already underway as part of the massive bipartisan infrastructure law signed last year. Coming up on Government Matters, some concerns from lawmakers on how the money's being spent. President Biden signed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill last year. So far, more than $80 billion of it has been dedicated to projects. Transportation Secretary Buttigieg recently updated lawmakers on their progress and challenges. Eugene Malero is a senior congressional tra reporter at Transport Topics. Eugene, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. 
So what are some of those projects that are already underway? Yes, so the $80 billion really focuses on three areas, uh, the supply chain, climate change, and new technologies. When it comes to the supply chain, we're talking about money that is dedicated for the ports primarily, so those agencies are able to have additional funding to move freight more efficiently from the ports all the way down to our supermarkets and our stores. That's essentially the supply chain. Uh, they need money to modernize those ports, as well as uh, in recruit and retrain uh, people for their workforce. On the climate change, uh, we're talking about money for state agencies, so they're able to retrofit buildings and vehicles and reduce emissions, and um, build projects that are able to withstand the impact of a major hurricane and floods. And then with new technologies, this is your autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, uh, and then also the Internet of Things. Uh, so this is uh, to dedicate money, $7.5 billion for electric vehicles, let's say, uh, to ensure that there is a transition from the traditional vehicle to these modern vehicles. So this bill was signed into law before inflation really hit these historic highs. So what impact is that going to have? Yeah, so inflation is a hum really big concern, especially on the part of members of Congress. They're hitting the USDOT hard on the impact that it will have on the cost of projects. And the department has acknowledged that inflation will, in the near term, affect how it, it will very likely increase uh, how agencies are paying for a new road repair, a new tunnel. Uh, the secretary told Congress recently that the department is calculating how to respond to inflation, meaning whether they need to increase their grant allocation to make up for this cost, uh, the cost difference. Uh, but at this time, uh, with the implementation of the law, it remains status quo, but inflation is pretty much on the radar, and members of Congress, the Republican caucus, is really sounding the alarm on that. I want to ask you about oversight, because this is a lot of money. So what mechanisms are in place to make sure that there isn't fraud, waste, and abuse? We've been hearing a lot from the White House. The White House uh, announced a infrastructure czar, Mitch Landrieu, who's overseeing the implementation of the, the, the all the use provisions. Uh, the White House also established with OMB a, a task force that is multi-agency at the top level with the secretaries, and all of them are overseeing the distribution uh, of, the, of the funding. In-house at DOT, they also created an internal task force, and then we have the usual uh, suspects. We have a government accountability office. They have to submit reports on the implementation. We have um, uh, the U.S. Department Inspector General uh, at Transportation. The IG there uh, is required to do reports. And then we have your outside government watchdogs who are also overseeing this. Who does, let's talk about the process. Who decides what projects get funded and how does that go? Yeah, so it's, while it is an intricate process, in simplest terms is that for most of the funding, DOT will have a grant application program. And for these grants, some of them are new, some of them are, uh, have been there for several years. Uh, they open it up 
for applicants and state agencies, uh, local governments submit their applications. Uh, the department will have uh, webinars to explain to these agencies the best practices for applying for these grants. Um, and then once these applications are submitted, all of this will be in the Federal Register. There will be a notice of uh, funding opportunity and then with the timeline, you know, saying that for three months they'll review applicants, another three months to internally decide recipients. Uh, so a process will be submitting an application for a grant, let's say, waiting several months uh, to hear back from DOT, and then DOT will award maybe half a year or a year into it. That's what I was going to ask is the timeline. Are we looking at a year between the grant application to when they're actually starting the project? All grants are different. They have different timelines. Some of them will be in the months, three to six months, but other grants that we're talking for what they call these mega projects that would be to really either upgrade an entire bridge or a metropolitan freight corridor, uh, those will be, they could take about a year in the whole application process. The money would then be dedicated to that recipient and that recipient will go through the process of taking that money incorporating in, into their operating budget. So this is a multi-year process to get the money from the federal level all the way down to your state agency. So how many jobs is this all gonna create? Because this is gonna need a lot of workers. And do we have enough workers given the job market right now? Yeah, so that's a great point. Um, if you're hearing from the White House, uh, when Biden, President Biden says this, we're gonna enter the infrastructure decade, uh, if you look at a, in the 10-year timeline, you can presumably expect about millions of jobs to be created uh, through that time period. But in the near term, um, a lot of the people in the transportation community are just focusing on specific projects and how many jobs that project will have. So uh, several hundred for a road repair project in this city, a thousand for that you know transit system over there. So at this point, it's unclear whether anybody can say millions of jobs will be created. Uh, but we're talking definitely in the hundreds of thousands of jobs in the near term. And there's an expectation that with uh, all the in incentives in the law to recruit and retain, that the workforce will be accrued uh, to respond to these demands. All right, Eugene, well, we'll watch this as this unfolds. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach 
to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.